You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Uh, let's continue in our worship as we go to God's Word. We're short. We're getting close to the end. We've just got two short weeks today, today and next week, and we'll be finishing up this long uh, series in the book of Hebrews, a little over 20 weeks that we'll be in this book uh, together. But let's go to chapter 12. Starting in verse 14. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's word. Our series is winding down, and you'll notice that the author is closing his teaching, bringing to conclusion here, with some very good and practical instructions for how they're to grow in their faith. Making personal commitments to one another as God's people. If they want to grow in their faith, if they want to grow into spiritual maturity, he's giving them instructions for how to do that. Last week, we, there was a lot of talk about these personal commitments. There was this analogy that the life of faith is like a race that the runner must run with endurance, focusing on the prize at hand. And if anything, we've learned from Hebrews that that when left alone, we drift from our walk with God. We do not grow into spiritual maturity if we just kind of let it go. We actually drift away from God. We drift further from him. And so the author is wanting his audience and us to, to make these personal commitments to be firm in our faith, to focus intently on growing in our faith. He says you must be deliberate in doing that. If you want to grow, be deliberate. I was sifting through some old photos, trying to clean up some of the 34,000 photos I have on Amazon Cloud, (laughs) right? 34,000, what happened? That's like just, that was just this last year. And uh, I was sifting through and looking at some things, and I noticed a picture of our small Arizona ash tree in our front yard. And this is our tree. Uh, 
it looks really condensed, but it's, it's not that skinny. But our, I mean, this is our tree in our front yard. And I have to be honest with you, I'm really disappointed in this tree. It's been in the ground for three years, and I'm disappointed in it. I feel like it's not thriving. I feel like it's the, the branches aren't extending out. It's really clustered. It looks kind of weird. I've been nurturing it. I've been pruning uh, when needed. I have been uh, extending the water drip lines. I've been, actually, I've even reached out to like horticulturalists and like people that are experts in this species of tree. and like, what do I do to help it to thrive? And it's just, it's been really discouraging. It's only about seven feet tall. The branches seem stunted. Um, the buds are all clustered together. It's, it's just a weird, goofy tree, and it just bugs me. And I feel like nothing has happened in the last three years. And I stumbled ac across this picture that I took three years ago when I first put it in the ground. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness. And it's weird. It's like, well, Pete, this is of course. Like, but I was shocked because... I mean, I actually have gone out, and no, no kidding, at least once a week, I will go out and I will just spend time with this tree. And, I, and I'll be like, come on, buddy, like, you can do this, like, come on. I'll look at it, I'll inspect it. Um, there's, a, it, it, it. there's a little cardinal there right now. It's just, I don't know, I was just really touched. As I looked at this three years ago, and I realized my tree is thriving. My, my tree is, has really grown a ton. I never even thought, like, the, the, the root of it, uh, you know, the, the base of it, I thought, has it even um, grown in its trunk size? I put a zip tie on it to kind of see if the zip tie would break off, meaning that it would grow. And it did break off, but I convinced myself that it broke off because it just got, like, weathered and brittle. And I'm like, this isn't, it is not growing. Um, so what, this taught me a lot. It, it it's, it's not where, my tree, it's not where I want it to be, but it's definitely not where it was. And I have been so deliberate. I mean, every week and going out and every season at the right time, uh, when, do I, when do I fertilize? When do I water? How often do I water? It's been very intentional and it's been really discouraging. But looking on it three years, it's like, this is actually, there's been a ton of growth. But I haven't noticed it because it's just been so daily. Same thing every single day. Segway <laughs> to Hebrews. Like spiritual growth is just, it doesn't happen on its own. It's deliberate. It's long. It is, there, endurance is required. It takes a long time. And we may not be where we want to be, but by God's grace, we're, we're not where we were. And we are the last ones to see like real growth in our, our life at times. Maybe other, we need others to kind of look in and, and see that growth. And, and this dear pastor, this this, this leader of this small house church in the first century writing to these new Christians, he's wanting to encourage them in this. And he's, he's wanting them to stand firm and to endure in their faith. And he's pointing out that, that spiritual maturity and spiritual growth takes time and it takes commitment and it takes deliberate action. It takes uh, focus and if we become discouraged, we will drift and we'll wander thinking that God's not doing anything because he's maybe out of sight. We don't perceive his work in our life. And we learned last week that growing in faith, the life of faith is a, is a um, long distance race. It's a journey. It's like a tree that is planted that grows and bears fruit one day. 
And so the issue here is about seeing to it that our spiritual maturity is of primary concern in our life, that we'd attend to it. Is, is your personal spiritual growth of primary concern in your life? We are encouraged to see to it that we give energy, commitment, priority to growing in faith. Not just a setting it and forgetting it. Not just a coasting through life. Because if we do that, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, we will be like a boat that drifts off course. And wake up one day, finding ourselves very far from where we hope to be. And so the author brings before his friends what seems like very simple instruction. These instructions become our main points for today. There are two things that nurture spiritual growth. There are two things that kill spiritual growth. And then finally, which was a little weird, he says there are two mountains that tell a story of hope. And we'll get to that. What was, all, what was up with all that mountain talk? Let's talk about these first two things that nurture spiritual growth. Because he brings our attention to this. He says there's two things that will help you in your spiritual growth. Striving for peace and striving for holiness. Now, I'll say that these instructions for spiritual growth are so simplistic. They seem so, like, easily neglected. Like, actually, I'm kind of disappointed in the answers. You want to grow? I'm going to give you two things. Okay, what is it, God? Show me something profound. Peace and holiness. You got anything else in, stored up in there? Anything else? I think other good advice? What is that? Peace and holiness. It's so simplistic. So easy to neglect, so easy to forget. We think that a life of growing in faith must be so complicated in order to be beneficial. Here are the two things that nurture spiritual growth, striving for peace and striving for holiness. Almost offensively simplistic. But like planting a tree, we say, well, how does a, a tree grow into health? Water and sunlight. Well, that's too simple. What else? Like there's got to be something more profound Water and sunlight. These two things that we are instructed to cultivate will lead to spiritual growth, not because they're simple, but because they're essential to the character of God and how he works in our life. Because without peace and without holiness, our passage says, no one will see the Lord. So these are simple, but they are so critical, so essential. Let's dig a little deeper into this because they're simple. We need to we need to bring some insight into it. Even though we have peace with God through faith, it doesn't mean that we have peace with others. We know that, right? Have you ever noticed how few things in your life will dis disrupt your relationship with God like being in conflict with another person? How, how, how difficult it is to say, God, I really hate this person, but I love you so much. I feel so close with you. In fact, the Bible mocks that kind of attitude. The Bible mocks it and says, how can you say you love God and hate your brother and hate your sister? And, and why is that? Why is it really difficult to have enmity with another person, open peace, open, I mean, open conflict, and have a, what feels like a disconnected relationship with God? And here's why, because failing to pursue peace is to rebel against the character of God. It is to rebel against our very calling. 
for the, the reason why we exist. Let me show you. Here's the pattern of life that God has invited us into as his people. God shows us who he is. He says, I am love. I pour out my love on you. Now love others. God says, I am merciful. I show mercy to you. Now be merciful to others. God says, I am joy. I pour out my joy on you. Receive my joy. And now manifest this joy through your gratitude and thanksgiving, even in the midst of conflict. If God is peace, and he says that he's broken down the barriers that were between him and sinners, him and his people, he says, I've broken down those barriers by giving my son Jesus to die in your place, Right, this is all of Hebrews has been all about this. Just real quick recap, right? The temple, the curtains that separated. There's like this imaginary sign on the temple door that says, sinners beware. Access denied. And they had to go through all these rituals to become pure before God. And God says, I tore down that barrier. And we have access to God because of Jesus his perfect life and death and resurrection. He says, if I am peace and I've given you my peace, then you are called to be peacemakers. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. To strive for peace is to imitate the character of God. They'll be called sons of God. We, bring it, we take this family resemblance. One of the greatest uh, components of and blessings of the gospel is adoption into God's family. And one of those key expressions of being his and, and being like God is to be peacemakers. To understand what it means to be a peacemaker, we must understand what it means that God is a peacemaker. Jesus didn't come and die and raise from the dead so that we could just be nice, merely nice, calm, peaceful people. He did it so that he would remove the barrier that separated us from him because of our sin. That's what peace is. It's bringing restoration between two parties that were once at one time against each other. And God says, this is precisely what I have done in giving my son to you. I've broken down those barriers that kept me from you, that kept you from me. So to strive for peace is to pursue acts of love by which we attempt to, as much as it depends on us, to remove those barriers between ourselves and other people. We are to give ourselves to that work as God's dearly beloved children. And the word strive here, it's a uniquely um, aggressive word. It, it, it plays off of this idea that we saw last week by the, the runner who runs a, way, a race. And to strive, it really just, it means in another sense to chase after someone. Like in, like in a hot pursuit, like running after someone who like stole your purse. So this, this enemy, and you're running after them to catch them. So this, this aggressive term, strive for peace, run after them. It's, a, it's an aggressive pursuit of, of unity with people whom there is conflict. We should be eager to maintain that. We should be eager to maintain, the Bible says, the bond of peace with others, especially those within the family of God. Especially those. Would you say that you are eager 
to maintain the bond of peace with others? Or would you say that you're just merely hopeful that it happens? Would you say, oh, I want to be at peace. Of course, I don't want conflict. But what evidence is there that you are eager to maintain that? Or when conflict happens, do you just move on, turn the other, turn the page of your life and find new friends? What if God did that with us? He broke down that wall. He broke down those barriers. He fills us with his peace and he calls us to imitate him. And so to be a peacemaker isn't just to, be a, to strive after being a, a good and moral person. It's to enjoy God. It's to manifest him. It's to enjoy him and bless others. Let's look, at, let's look at holiness. These two go together because of the pursuit of peace is so closely linked to the pursuit of holiness. And this is a good place to be reminded that pursuing peace is not a condition for our acceptance with God. Pursuing holiness is not a condition for our acceptance with God. We are made right with God by grace through faith in Jesus, apart from works. But peace and holiness are necessary consequences of a life that's been filled with the power of God. So much so that, that Bible, the Bible mocks this idea that we could have one without the other, that we could have peace with God and not pursue peace with others, that we could love God and hate our brother or sister. In other words, if we're striving to live outwardly good lives with others, real Christianity, real faith, says it is really a matter of internal transformation, purity of heart with God that overflows into a life of peace with others. Holiness is about being pure in heart, even being a peacemaker is about being pure in heart. It's not simply about our behavior and just doing the right thing. It's the result of a heart that's been changed towards God and towards others. This happens when we are led to believe in Jesus Christ, that his spirit comes into our hearts to live within us, to give us a new nature, gives us new affections and emotions for God, gives us new motivations and passions creates in us a new love for him, a desire to obey him, an affection for others that have wronged us. Only, only that can come from God. That's not a work of our own. And the ability to live as he commanded us to live, that's all from God. To live for holiness, to strive for holiness, it is to zealously seek after God at a heart level pursuit of transformation. This is why the call to peace and holiness go together. This is why the, the outward action of striving for peace and the inward purity of heart cannot be separated. They go together. Those are the things that nurture our spiritual growth. Pursuing an inner holiness, purity of heart, rest in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, being mindful of how that overflows into a life of peace with others. If we do that, we will grow. If we do that, if we strive for that, we will see God work in us, maybe not abruptly, probably not radically in a sense of just like this huge change in our life, but maybe like that tree. After, after, after years of just giving ourselves to this hard work of reconciliation, restoration, peace with others, and growing in our heart to trust in God, 
Maybe we'll wake up one day and realize that we're not the person that we once were, that we've actually been rescued from that, and that God has done a miraculous work in our life, and that'll encourage us. We'll see our growth. Maybe we're not going to be where we want to be, but God has promised that he will finish the work that he started with us. He's calling us to live by faith and not by works, not by sight. Not in the things that we see immediately every day, but to live in trust of what he has promised to us. And there's two things that uh, kill spiritual growth. Gentleness is, or grace, gracelessness is one, and sexual immorality, which naturally go together. Can't you see? No, this, is, this will be fun. We'll get to that in a second here. There is an interesting uh, pairing in here. Gracelessness, failing to give grace to another, and sexual immorality. To be graceless is to fail to apply the grace of God in the presence of another in the midst of their failure. And there ha- this has been the overarching theme in Hebrews, right? That God pours out his grace on sinful people. He provides a means for our rescue, our salvation, our forgiveness of sins, not through our works or our ritual. He has done away with the, the temple sacrifice by providing the sacrifice of Christ. He has done away by the, the earthly uh, priest, uh, by means of uh, Christ, who is our great high priest, this has been the overarching theme. And here he's saying there, there is no, because of that, there is no sin too great that makes anyone out of the reach of God's grace. It is this grace that rescues a person, that forgives a person, that strengthens a person. That is why a person who fails to give grace to another person is not only bringing pain upon that person, but they're stunting their own growth as well. It is this double-edged sword that brings harm to our brother or sister, and it also stunts our own growth. So there's this collective call in our passage to make sure no one misses this. No one misses grace. See to it, like in your community, in our church, that, that no one misses an opportunity for grace, both in yourself, in your own life. Don't miss it. Don't miss this opportunity to, to embrace the grace of God, and don't miss the opportunity to give it out to somebody else. We have a responsibility to ourselves, and we have a responsibility to one another to be saturated in the gospel, which is the good news that God's grace has been poured out on us in Christ. We saturate ourselves in the grace of God by confessing sin, Right? This is one of the means by which we, we enjoy the grace of God. We say, God, I'm, I'm saved not by my righteousness, but yours. I have fallen short of what you've commanded to me. I confess my sin. I've, I've, I've wronged you. I apologize to you. I repent of my sin. We grow in grace or we, we apply the grace of God by frequently um, meditating on God's word, pouring over his scriptures and applying it to our life praying for understanding of God's word so that we can live out its instruction. And through, our, our, our scripture says, through the corporate experience of worship together. So these are the three things by which we uh, obtain the grace of God or enjoy the grace of God or grasp the grace of God. Confessing sin, meditating on God's word, and worshiping with one another. 
the quickest way then to kill your spiritual growth. Keep sin to yourself, be lazy in God's word, and be absent from the fellowship of God's people. And I know there are people that have done this so much and then they say, my relationship with God and others feels so weak right now. And I say, no, I don't say that. Shocker. God, these are, this is what God has said. If you want to kill your spiritual growth, don't be open about your sin. Don't pursue others. Don't get in God's word. And sure enough, that, that plant will wither. It will not bear fruit. No one grows when these things are missing. No one grows. And this is where bitterness, well, bitterness grows. Do you notice that? What we want will not grow, but what will come in will be weeds. So something's always growing. And, and, and here it says there's a root of bitterness. If there's not a root of, of gospel, if there's not a root of peace, if there's not a root of grace, then in its place will be um, a disease that will rot from the inside, a root of bitterness. One of the best things you can do for me is to make sure that you do not neglect to soak your thoughts and affections in the reality of God's grace for you. The best thing that I can do for you is to make sure that I don't neglect to soak my thoughts and affections in the grace of God for me. The best thing that you can do for your spouse is to not neglect to soak your thoughts and affections in the grace of God for you. The best thing we could do for one another is to love God more than anything. That is the best thing that we can do is to set all of our affections on the grace of God. That's what helps us grow into being graceful people, grace-giving people. Apart from that strength, apart from that indwelling grace of God that changes us in real inner transformation, we're just kind of trying our best on our own strength and character to just be good, thoughtful, kind people, but that, that wears out. That strength has short-lived. We do it for a little while, and then we burn out. We say, I can't do it anymore. Of course you can't. can't. You were never meant to do it on your own strength. Do you believe that? You, this is really the, uh, much like the airplane, like put the mask on first kind of thing on yourself so that you can then help somebody else. The best thing you can help, the best thing you can do to help another person is to not fail to take hold of the gospel in your own life. Now, what does any of this have to do with sexual immorality? I'm so glad you asked. And and, here's, and why bring Esau into this? What did he do? Pulling him, that's pulling him out from deep, right? Don't be, don't be like Esau. What? The, the first century readers, would they know exactly what he's talking about. This is all very clear. For, for us, if, if you don't know your Old Testament or if you, if you don't know your Hebrew Bible or have spent much time in seeing how it's connected to Christ, like these analogies are, are going to be lost. But here is what it is. Esau, of course, was the firstborn uh, twin of Isaac. He came out, right? And his brother 
Jacob was grabbing onto his heel, right? And because Isaac was the firstborn, he, by birthright, was heir to the covenant promises of God that ought to be given down at the right time from the father would bless then the son who would receive those promised blessings of the covenant, that the promise of God to rescue and to bless the world would come through Esau. Esau sold that right because he was hungry. He gave it up. And he asked Jacob, he said, I'm starving. I'll make, I'll make you a meal. And you have to give me your blessing. He says, I'll do whatever. Just give it to me. Give me the, give me the meal. He gave it up because of his appetite. Right? And he gave up the goodness of God. Esau allowed his appetite for immediate pleasure to dictate his behavior in life rather than the goodness of God, much like sexual immorality does. Sexual immorality is ultimately a selfish expression that rejects the goodness of God. Rather than bringing God's created design for sexual responsibility under the lordship of God, we become selfish and then pursue our appetites any way that we choose. And our, and our, and our preacher says, That's, how's that any different than Esau, who gave up the goodness of God for his appetite? Next week, uh, we, we finish our long series through the book of Hebrews, but you're already seeing that the author is kind of getting quickly to like wrapping up of like, here's what I want for you all. Here's how you ought to live your life. We're reminded of the, this whole purpose of our whole life and the whole aim of our faith is to take hold of the grace of God, to not fail to obtain it, to rest in it, to resist temptation, to not be uh, confused by um, what's happening around us, but to stand firm and to endure in faith. And God is faithful and he will never give up on us. And what awaits us, which, in, which we have already obtained in a large way, uh, already is salvation, is already this future promise of Christ. For he has given us himself, his Holy Spirit, to dwell within us. We already have him. We are warned to hold fast to Christ no matter what temptation comes our way. And we're invited to prioritize these things that will nurture growth in our life and cast off the things that hinder our growth. And wherever your journey takes you, the whole point is to always keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And throughout our life, there will always be choices. There will always be competing affections. There will always be appetites that tempt us to take our hope away from what God has promised and put it into something that will give us immediate satisfaction that will always disappoint. It will never be able to deliver on what God, on what it promises, which is, well, I'll make you happy. I'll make you feel significant. I will give you pleasure. And for a moment, it does and it fades so quickly. And this is why the author wants us to see these competing choices that we have and this competing path for how we will live our life. And he talks about these two mountains that offer us competing pictures of hope. Basically saying, like, you can hope 
in one of what these, these, uh, either of these mountains represent. And again, it means very little to us if we don't know our Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But there's profound uh, relevance in this for us. Here he's talking about these two mountains. It's confusing. We can get to it quick, though. The author is writing now for effect. I mean, he's writing for effect, and he's, he's making big claims and using stirring up strong emotions. And he tells a story of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And Mount Sinai, of course, was the mountain, a place of worship that God's people went, the Israelites, after they were rescued from Egypt in slavery, God brought them to the mountain where they worshiped God. It's the place where Moses went up and God gave him the Ten Commandments. He came down from the mountain. They had crafted a cow, a golden, a golden calf that they were worshiping, right? So this mountain was the place where God dwelt. His presence was on that mountain. And he says, here, you've come to worship me and I will dwell on this mountain. Mount Sinai was the, the mountain of God that, that brought his people close. And this was not an encouraging option for them. So when the, when the author says, you got two choices, you got Mount Sinai and, they're, and already they're like, don't want that one. What's next? Because why? Well, because Mount Sinai was terrifying. Mount Sinai was a flaming mountain that what we, they are told that if you even get near to it, if an animal in your possession touches the mountain and puts a paw on that mountain, they will die. And he commanded, if anyone touches this mountain, they are to be killed by means of stoning. I mean, this is a terrifying place. Why? Because on that mountain, like on the tabernacle, there is this imaginary sign that says, sinners, beware. You're in the presence of a holy God and a perfect God. Sinners not welcome. Anyone who gets close to this mountain will be consumed in flames. God allowed Moses on that mountain by special provision as Moses was the mediator of God's people to communicate with God between, between God and his people. And Moses himself said, this is the most terrifying I've ever been. He says, I trembled with fear just even thinking about approaching that mountain. It was so scary. The mountain was actually roped off, literally roped off. There were loud trumpets that sounded throughout the night when it was dark. So people knew, kind of like the red lights that blink, so planes know that there's a mountain coming up. And this mountain had trumpets that sounded to say, you're close enough. Don't come any closer. This is where God is, and you can't be with him because you are not pure. Who can approach that mountain? <laughs> no one. Who of us? Because this was a mountain of law. This was a mountain of righteousness. This was a mountain of holiness. And God said, only the righteous can come. Only the holy can come. Only the pure in heart can come. Who of us approaching God based on our character would have the confidence to say, give me a shot. I think I can go. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, there's another mountain. You were brought now to a different mountain, not Mount Sinai. You're brought to a different mountain. And where Mount Sinai had a sign that said, sinners beware, this sign says, sinners draw near. God dwells on this mountain, just like he did before. This one mountain was an earthly mountain, a terrifying place for people who have not lived up to God's commands. 
It was a mountain of law. It was a mountain that said, obey or die. It produced fear and insecurity and discouragement. It represents all of our striving that is never enough. It represents for us God's commands, and we fall short of God's commands, and what is left is guilt and shame, judgment and condemnation. But the author says, but there's another mountain where Christ is enthroned, and he says, draw near. And instead of trumpets sounding to warn us, there are trumpets that draw us in, that invite us to come close. He sits enthroned on this mountain only because he was the only one who could set foot on that mountain of God's commands and take away the danger for sinners because he offered himself the sinless Christ who's perf- perfectly obedient, the only one holy, who went and died in our place. So that we who trust in Jesus and rest in him would be treated as if we did everything that God has asked us to do. The mountain of fear has now become a mountain of grace. For all who trust in Christ, this is the mountain you've come to. And each mountain tells a story. Mount Sinai says your hope is in your righteousness. Your hope is in your, uh, your obedience. Your hope is in your character. Your hope is in your achievements and in your striving. How confident would you be to approach that mountain where God dwells? But Mount Zion says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever is hungry, let him come. Whoever is tired of striving, whoever, whoever and whoever at all wishes to come, Come and take the free gift of eternal life. Come and take the free peace of God. Come and take all of his affection. And it's to this mountain you have come, our passage says, if your hope is in Jesus. It's all about him. Life of faith is, it's it's troubling. It could be scary. It could be a struggle. It could be a great wrestle. But we are to be encouraged that even in the midst of all that, don't forget the mountain to which you're drawing near. On this mountain, we're not, a, we're not judged according to our sin, but judged according to Jesus' righteousness. But we only come to this mountain by faith. You and I can only draw near to that mountain by faith, only if we come believing and trusting and resting the big problem with, with Sinai, the first mountain, is that the people of God could seek so clearly of their sin, right? I mean, it was literally written on stone, all the ways that they had sinned against God. But there was no provision made to take away that sin. So they drew close to the mountain just to know that they were sinful, and then they couldn't do anything about it. But we are shown, as we draw near to the mountain of God, we are seen, we're shown our sin, but we are shown the provision for that sin in Jesus Christ. Well, he's the sacrificial lamb. He's the one that has been slaughtered. His blood has been shed. His body has been broken. He died for you. He is your heavenly, your great high priest. And we can draw near with confidence to the throne of God who is willing to help us in times of need. This means in the midst of difficulty, even as a result of your own sin, even if the difficulty in your life is because of your own failures, we can approach God in confidence. 
because of his grace. We're secure in his love, not because of our character, but his promise. It changes the way we view our sin. It changes the way we view the sin of another person. It changes the way we pursue peace. It changes the way we obey God's commands for sexual responsibility, sexual morality, pursuing our enemies, forgiving those who have wronged us. It changes everything. And it also means that if we neglect faith in Christ, our only hope left is our own righteousness, which we've already kind of ruined. So draw near with confidence. Draw near to God who welcomes you with his affection. Jesus is the source and the giver of all that we hope for. Don't fail to grasp him.